Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. All right. Hello. Uh, welcome to Diversity 2.0, a modern guide to intersectionality and allyship in the workplace and also the world. So I am Emily Howe. I'm the organizer of today's event. I also founded the Executive Women's Forum here at the Commonwealth Club and I'm a tech consultant. I help tech companies with gender, with LBGT stuff, and also to get better for non-binary folks and other people more generally. Um, thank you so much for coming. Usually at these lunchtime events, we um, we fill up as people are able to tear themselves off of their desk and run over here. So it'll probably get a little more full. Um, and Thank you, the Commonwealth Club, for hosting, and also uh, Stephen Huang for helping me name this event, because we originally had it as something about Diversity 101, and he looked at the panelists and the content and was like, oh, no, this is next level. This is 2.0. <laughs> so that is what you are in for. I will provide a little uh, juicy context to get us started, and then the panelists will share a little highly compacted, about a three-minute or so uh, juicy, punchy bit about their perspective on these issues. And then we will go into a, a facilitated discussion of the top questions on diversity in um, today in terms of women's advancement and diversity generally. And then we will adjourn right before one so that you can ask your questions one-on-one -on -one and come right up and have those kinds of uh, meaty discussions with the panelists instead of doing uh, a free-for-all Q&A. So that's the format. So some food for thought as we start. So we all know uh, that diversity is good for business, that advancing women and having women in the boardroom is good for business. You can Google that and find any number of facts and studies supporting that. So that's the basis for this conversation. Another thing I'd like you to think about that isn't necessarily... Um, thought about all the time is that we carry so many different identities, identities where we're in the minority and when we're in the majority, where we can be allies to others from a position of power and where we um, are someone in need of an ally who's in a position of power to help elevate us and help us find safety and opportunity, etc. So um, for example, I have privileges related to being, to being a white person, to being straight looking, um, able-bodied. There's a whole number of axes, right, out there that people have. And then also I have minority or targeted identities as um, certainly a woman, um, a woman working in the tech field also. So as a practicing Jew who is often in spaces where there's anti-Semitic violence um, as, a th as a threat and also as a member of the LBGT community. So I carry many opportunities to be an ally and many opportunities um, to be an ally and require an ally and all of those things. So as we all do, so let's see, all of us have room to grow. That's another assumption for this. If you are wondering where specifically you have room to grow, I highly recommend the Harvard website bias study, just Google Harvard bias, blah, blah. You can take these little surveys on there in terms of lots of different identities, and it helps you find out which kinds of people you prefer or have biases about. And then you can really just start like downloading the podcast about how to get better in those areas or going to the right spot in the bookstore, et cetera. So um, let's see. Another thing I want to mention is we are all trying to do our best, but we were all raised in these cultural stews of biases that we got from media, from maybe our grandparents, maybe our parents, maybe our teachers that are telling us um, 
and showing us that certain groups have more privileges and and certain groups do not. So um, it's important to not blame ourselves so much as start doing actions to help balance out balance out the world. So we call this diversity 2.0 as uh, an opposite from diversity 101 or diversity 1.0 for a few reasons. We're talking about three ways that uh, we can really move forward equity and justice movements that are not as prevalent currently in diversity and women's advancement movements. So the three things are working intersectionally, right? If we work just on women, like a women's conference or something, then it's just going to be white women, or it's just going to be able-bodied white women. It's just going to be straight white Christian women, et cetera. It's going to be the kinds of women who are in the power seats. Um, women experience the workforce dramatically differently based on all of our axes, um, and so in order to help all women or to help all people, then you have to look at that. The second thing is we need allies. In Diversity 2.0, it can't just be uh, queer people or people of color knocking on the door or women knocking on the door and being like, let us in. Like we tried that in so many ways. It's not working. We need people from the inside. When And when we are on the inside, we need to be saying like, we need to get more people of color in. We need to do this. We need to bring more people in. So we need allies in this one. And then also we need facts and figures. So instead of just popping up uh, diversity sort of lunches or circles or groups that might be interesting or feel good, what we really need to do in this new world to move the needle forward is look at the facts on what research says is going on in terms of diversity and then look at our company data to see what is specifically going on in our companies and move that forward and make sure there's some in, that we make our initiatives based on what's actually wrong and then that we follow them and look at the metrics to see. And I know this sounds like common sense because it's common business sense, but when we come to diversity movements and women's advancement movements, a lot of times people ignore these things. So to help us dig into these areas, I have the four most interesting and impressive experts that I could find in our amazing part of the world. So we'll, we're starting with... Um, Anastasia Bacigalupo, who's an expert on this is all the way down on the end, an expert <laughs> on helping organizations attract and retain talent, especially talent where there are people with visible and invisible disabilities. She has personally taught me so much about what people who currently don't have disabilities need to know about people who have a variety of different disabilities so that I can become a better ally. And I'm so excited for all of you to learn what she has to say. Also, um, we have Dr. Breeze Harper, who is a PhD in the social sciences. Her emphasis is on intersectionality, anti-racism, and racial gender inclusion equity. She's a super highly sought after diversity consultant, immersive speaker, and a legal expert witness on race and gender and how they interact together. Um, I'm also honored to run a joint project with her as, about helping organizations get more uh, diverse, get their events more diverse. So uh, that's one of the things we handed out. It's red and black and white. Um also, then we have Marco Lindsay right here, who's the chief of staff at uh, UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business. He's a self-described diversity and inclusion, ch inclusion champion. It's right on his LinkedIn and an ally to women in the workplace, which I also love seeing on people's LinkedIn. It's one of my favorite things I see on the computer all day. So thank you. He's a huge mover and shaker and people connector. Talk to him afterwards if you want to know anything about economic empowerment the organization 100 Black Men of the Bay Area, or his current passion, which is non-engineering careers in Bay Area tech companies. So 
awesome, sweet jobs where you don't need to know how to code. And then finally, uh, we're going to be grounded in those facts and data, thanks to Stephen Huang, who's head of diversity and inclusion at CultureAmp. So lots of your companies probably use CultureAmp. He's helped over 300 organizations really look at and analyze their DNI data through an intersectional lens. So he's going to help us um, think through the best way to um, know about your facts and company culture. So I'm going to turn it over to our experts for your three-minute perspectives on our topic today. You want to start? Yeah, why not? Thank you. uh, For purposes of podcast, this is Anastasia. Thanks so much for being here. It's really exciting. Uh, Emily asked us to sort of focus on on three things, and it's really hard to focus on three things because there's like a bajillion. So Mm. I wanted to start with a core concept for being a better ally to people with disabilities, and that is that people with disabilities are not inspiring. So by having a disability, you're not inspiring. So the fact that I have a hearing disability and I have complex PTSD and I arrived here today, you should not be applauding me, right? Because I got here because I'm excited to be here and I want to innovate with you. That's why you should applaud. So when you, when you look at a person with a disability, if it's an apparent disability or they've declared to you or you get the indication they have a disability, it's important to think about what messaging you're getting from society and your family or your culture that makes you think that people with disabilities are inspirational, People with disabilities don't want to be your inspiration. Mm. Um, on the handout, I provided you just a little information about sort of the terms that I might use throughout today's discussion. Um, and there's actually a really great TED Talk by Stella Young, who she speaks very eloquently about the topic and rather humorously. So it kind of puts you at ease because uh, it can be kind of a, an interesting topic. You may feel really uncomfortable because of the messages, again, that you've received. The other one of the other things I wanted to mention is it's important that if you're supporting a person in the workplace with a disability, you don't get ahead of them. Sometimes with allyship, we think we've gone to all the classes and we've read all the books and we listen to that blog or we listen to that podcast and we read the blog and we know everything there is. But a lot of times you really just need to talk to the person. We had a situation where... Um, uh, this company had hired a new person and uh, they came to uh, one of the staff who identifies as a disability, not even the same disability, not even <laughs> like one person had a hearing disability, the other one had a physical disability in terms of mobility. And they said, how do we, how do we help this person? And I, the, they talk, turned to me and I said, talk to the person. <laughs> and and it, it comes from a really positive place. Like you really want, you want that person to say, hey, I really care and I want to make you feel comfortable. But Oftentimes, you really need to start with that person and to really connect with them. Um, I think another part of allyship is being aware of language, and I think everybody will share that. Um, But when you use phraseology for um, emotions, you can lock the door on people feeling comfortable to share that they may have an invisible disability. They may have uh, depression. They may have PTSD. They may have an anxiety disorder. Um, they may have bipolar disorder. And things that are associated with it have negative connotations like, oh, she's so manic. You know, uh. that stuff, even though like, oh, that's so crazy. Or, you know, you're not thinking in that moment that that could have an impact. But if somebody in your staff is a person that has a diagnosis like that, and you feel so comfortable to use that language, they may not feel comfortable to declare what they have. And that will close the door on inclusion. 
Thank you so much. Yeah, sorry, three minutes, right? Yes, it was so good. Thank you. <laughs> um, Dr. Amy Breeze Harper. And um, when I think about inclusion specific to the Bay Area, a lot of the work that I've been doing is focusing on racial inclusion and equity. And um, inclusion, a lot of the work I do is specifically looking and talking to white identified people who believe they are liberal and that a good, there's a good white person and a bad white person, and that there's this easy binary that people who collude in racism are the MAGA hat wearers, those who identify as Republican, conservative, and not understanding that um, to understand how you've been racialized as white mm-hmm. and thinking that you're liberal doesn't mean that you should not engage in dismantling white supremacy. Mm -hmm. So really having those conversations, naming it for what it is and understanding um, an inclusive way um, and intersectional way, what it means to be a white person. And specifically a lot of the work I focus on on are white women Mm -hmm. and understanding the history of not just being a woman, but you've been racialized as white in a white settler nation. What does it mean to be a woman, fully human, treated as a lady and the narrative innocence. So really understanding that history of being racialized as white in a seemingly liberal region of the, mm-hmm. of the Bay Area mm-hmm. um, and understanding what you need to do and understand that history. Um, and when you go into the workplace, when you're supporting women of color, we're not a monolith. A black woman from the East Coast is very different from a Chicana woman um, from Los Angeles and those different histories. So really understanding that and how you've been taught as a white person, what person of color even means. So really understanding those intersections as a white woman for the most part. Uh, and to be an ally is to understand that history, not be scared of it and to challenge yourself. I mean, to understand, okay, we've had the conversations for a long time. Now, what do the actions look like? What should they look like? How do we implement it, operationalize it? So really helping to be an ally in that way. That transformation is supposed to be scary. It's supposed to be difficult. Mm -hmm. It's not supposed to be easy. Then it wouldn't be transformation. So really understanding that piece as an ally, it's supposed to be hard. I mean, not being focused so much on white guilt and white shame. Yeah, it doesn't feel good. It's not supposed to, but let's move on to those who really need the help the most. Mm -hmm. So that's basically what I focus on through empathetic storytelling, looking at theory, abstract theory, the metrics. So how do I put together empathetic storytelling, real like narratives that really get at the heart to um, get people, mostly white women, to take those action steps, those, those action planning um, and being an ally and understanding how to create inclusivity and equity along at least racial justice, but kind of from an intersectional approach. See why I asked her to be on the panel. <laughs> thank was, you that, was that three minutes? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Thanks. Thank you. This needs to be like diversity 3.0. I know. <laughs> <It's> so awesome. <laughs> so great. And I love this like three minute uh, lightning okay, talk good. format. I love yes, the soapbox. Yeah. Um, my name is Steven. My pronouns are he, him. Um, my entrance into the diversity inclusion space actually came through the data and analytics side. So I didn't have the necessary sociology, anthropology, education, even quite lived experience um, until, you know, about five years ago when I um, was running an HR analytics team. And I kind of noticed through the data side that women, people of color, LGBTQ people were having disparate outcomes in companies. They were being hired at different rates, promoted at different rates. They were leaving at higher rates. And then the more I started to dig and dig, I fell into this space um, because it's a really big, meaty problem. And I like solving those kinds of problems. 
Um, two pieces of advice that I would share with everyone that's thinking about diversity and inclusion in their workplace, um, coming at it from a data side, because often people in power are moved by data, mm-hmm. is to consider measuring inclusion as well as measuring diversity. So in the last, uh, I don't know, five, six years, Google kind of got, got a started in many ways of sharing diversity data, which is solely focused on representation. That is critical, important work that needs to be done. Um, but also think about measuring inclusion. So if you think about diversity, it's measuring the balance of people in the room. Inclusion is measuring, are these people having an equal experience at work? And you can measure that mm-hmm. using an employee survey, using focus groups, what have you. Um, but it's super important to measure the employee experience that people are having. Right. You may have um, gender equality in terms of representation or um, you know, a lot of underrepresented minorities or underestimated minorities, what have you. But if that experience isn't equal, mm-hmm. then you don't quite have an inclusive workforce because mm-hmm. people are probably going to leave at higher rates. Um, they might not have the same opportunities to, to advance in the, in the workforce. They might not have the same amount of belonging. So mm-hmm. think about measuring inclusion as well as measuring diversity. As you're measuring diversity and inclusion, my second piece of advice is to think intersectionally, even beyond race and gender. So I think one of the reasons that we're not making the kind of progress that we want, certainly not as fast as we would like, um, is that by just focusing on race and gender, you know, white men are excluded or, or they're part of the denominator in this equation. So ignore the fact that White men can be gay or Jewish Mm -hmm. or veterans or disabled. If we only look at gender and race through that lens and have representation targets based on that, then you don't count, you don't Mm -hmm. count, you don't count, you don't Mm -hmm. count. And that really creates an us versus them mentality when these people are in the room and they're here to do the work. Mm -hmm. And so we have to evolve our metrics to a place where um, white men can feel included in those metrics. Not that Mm -hmm. it's about them or for them or it's centered for them, but... Um, too often, the people in power are only counting against our diversity and inclusion metrics. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to find better ways to evolve that so we all feel included in the problem. Awesome. Yeah. I also really love your use of underestimated. That's, yeah. yeah. Sweet. Thank you. I feel bad because I wish I had a pen and paper to write down all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> this will be recorded as a podcast. Beautiful. I'll send it to you. <laughs> uh, Marco T. Lindsay, he, him, his. Um, I'll start off by saying this. Uh, one of Three things I live my life by. I'll share one with you. And it's live your life as if you're 80 years old and you got to come back to today and do it all over again. I think each of us, if we got a chance to go back to high school, go back to college, there's something that we would do differently. Right. So imagine I imagine 80 year old me and I can't run as fast as I can run. I don't have the influence that I have. I don't have the faculties that I may have now. What will I have wished that I had done with myself on today? do those things. And so I led with that to say, I'll, I'll be quick. Um, I have two points. I want to just talk about assumptions and allyship. Um, I think that one of the issues that we face a lot is that as a people, we make assumptions about other people, right? We, we, we kind of have to, because there's so much data and stimuli, stimuli coming into us. We have to make quick judgments and quick assumptions. And what happens is when we do that, we usually neglect a huge part of the people that we interact with. And so you'll have someone that you'll see and, you know, you'll make an assumption about them and you will forget an entire aspect of their life that is really critical and crucial to them. And 
The reason that's important, the reason that's important, the reason why we can't do that is uh, there's so much data out there and there's so many conversations to be had that there's no need to. There's really no need to. Um, I think that, you know, I work at UC Berkeley at the business school. And many times, um, again, people make assumptions about other people. Um, you have data sets and you have to figure out, you know, business models. How often are we going out to just ask the question? Right now, we're going through a process of trying to figure out, um, you know, what diversity events have we had? And one of the questions that we want to ask is, you know, our speakers, what is the uh, what is their, their racial and gender makeup? Mm-hmm. And there's this huge fear, um, usually from majority groups, of asking that question mm-hmm. because there's this, uh, a fear that people are going to be offended. And so then you instead of asking the question, you make assumptions. And what happens is, again, um, you don't know if I'm black. You don't know if I'm African. You don't know if I'm Panamanian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But someone here has made an assumption about that. But you can just ask me because we want to have that conversation. And that's how the walls begin to come down, because once you start having those conversations, the assumptions go away. You realize that we probably have a lot more in common than you think, even if you're, uh, uh, you know, the complete opposite of me, you know, on the outside looking in. You'll find out that we probably have similar experiences. You'll probably find out that, hey, this is somebody I want to have a beer with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then it becomes easier for you and I to become one another's allies. Mm -hmm. And that goes to the second point of allyship. Um, I think that it's important uh, for people, all of us, all of us can be an ally to someone. Mm -hmm. Right. We all have a certain privilege uh, amongst us. Right. Um, Just it's totally random. But someone, you know, pointed out to me, a diversity director at Haas a few years ago. He pointed out something that was very interesting to me that I didn't think about. I travel a lot. I go to different countries and um, I walk around at night. And one of the things I notice is that that's a privilege that I have. I'm a 260-pound bodybuilder, <laughs> right? I'm probably going to be one of the last people on the list to be attacked, assaulted, right? But not everyone enjoys that privilege. So that means that I have to do my best to look out for those around me. Mm-hmm. And it's not just that, but it's in so many other ways. And we have to go out of our way to make those connections, to ask those questions, and be allies. And it's not enough to be an ally. We have to be advocates. Mm-hmm. Um, I know folks who, who, who are going through things. And it's not up to me to wait to advocate for them. It's for me, if I know there's injustice going on and I want this world to be better, I know that 80-year-old me is going to want for me right now to go in the room and have the conversation, to speak up on someone else's behalf when they're not there. Because at some point in my life, I needed that as well. And so it's important for us to be allies and to not make assumptions. And then lastly, we're talking about this allyship. We talk about this assumptions. Um, I think Stephen touched on it a bit. I'm actually a, a great bit, but there's so much intersectionality that we just can't take into play. I mean, there's 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 so many things that so many uh, variations of who we are and who we can be that we have to be an ally for all of those things. I have to be an ally for for someone who isn't who isn't as able as I am. I have to be ally for women. I have to be ally for younger people. I have to be ally for people who aren't working. I have to be ally for people who who feel excluded. Because until we all come up, then we'll all be suppressed. Mm-hmm. And so that's it. Love it. Thank you. So speaking about what do you really do when you're looking, when you're as your 80 year old self, and this is, this is for all of you, um, you're looking back and you're looking at a boardroom conversation or even here comes Thanksgiving, a Thanksgiving conversation where someone who you can't afford to offend, maybe they're in control of you having the job. Maybe you don't want to like rip your family into or make your grandma not hear you. Right. So what do you say when someone says something iffy that doesn't feel like a comment you want to let slide? It can be an outrageous comment or iffy. Like what are the actual words that you would use to address? A, it doesn't matter really what the comment is. 
I'll take it. Okay. okay. Um, don't be afraid to make people uncomfortable, first of all. Okay. Um, <laughs> my PR team called me a PR nightmare. <laughs> 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 Which I was like, thanks, Oops. because systemic change is uncomfortable. Yeah. So we just have mm-hmm. to get used to that. Yeah. Um, you know, people use language, and I've only been recently catching myself saying, oh, my gosh, that's crazy, or that's insane, or you mm. know, that kind of stuff. And when people use that language, um, I like to have a one-on-one conversation with them if I have the emotional capacity that day and not call them out publicly. And essentially what I tell them is, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, is I always say, just so you know, I'm not going to tell you that you can't use that word. I'm not going to be your your um, PC police. I'm not going to uh, watch you when I couldn't watch everyone. But I want to let you know that that language can be offensive to some people. And you probably didn't realize it, but like these groups may be excluded by that language. So you can continue to use that language, but it's probably going to get in the way of you being seen as an inclusive leader. It's probably going to hold you back in your career here and otherwise. Mm. So here are some words that I would suggest you use to like be more inclusive next time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That makes sense. I, I, I usually, uh, cause I, I had a, um, she passed, but I had a grandmother who would say things mm-hmm. and, um, I would try to, explain and sort of go to the emotional place as to why that term is a problem or that concept is a problem and give a story like a person that I know who uh, identifies that word or that concept as problematic Mm. and, you know, with crazy having friends that have been institutionalized against their will um, who are now out in society and working and had they been provided the support they needed, they would have been able, they would have never been locked up, you know? So having the wherewithal just to kind of say, I definitely love the pulling aside, you know, I think that's really important to the integrity of the conversation. You don't want to put someone on blast, but, you know, having that sort of giving them some bit of information to put in context why that word or concept is particularly a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also just wanted to say like, uh, we were talking about this before the panel about words and like, if you just get the words right, but you're not doing any action, that's like not good. Right. That's not definitely not good enough. So I mean, I would rather have someone mm-hmm. pushing forward all the justices in the world and still using some of the wrong words if we had to choose, right. If it's right. this false binary. So, I mean, these words are just to signal that we're doing the real work out there. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And if I could just explain sure. on that, I think the concept is being able to connect. Like if a person identifies on your team a certain way and that something related to that identity comes up mm-hmm. is to go to them and mm-hmm. to make mistakes. It is okay mm-hmm. to make mistakes. I mean, I think sometimes we get so caught up in the words to your point that we, we can't talk. Like we feel like we can't even express or have a conversation and that limits the connecting. I would, would, err more on the side of making the mistakes and putting the foot in the mouth um, than to just be so caught up in, and be frozen in mm-hmm. your language. That's just what you were saying, Breeze and Stephen. In fact, I, I did a survey of women in the workplace and I asked them, what is the thing, what do you wish the good guys in the office knew, right? Mm-hmm. And they basically said, when you boiled it all down, they said, that you have to act and you don't have to be perfect. We're not expecting you to be perfect, but we're expecting you to act. And I think that translates Mm -hmm. to a lot of places. Yeah. Any other uh, hints on how to respond in a way where um, you can't 
just throw the Thanksgiving table upside down and run out the door. Right. <laughs> I know it's uncomfortable, <laughs> but in a way where you want the person to hear you, because they also kind of can't hear you if you do that. Right. I mean, I know I'm coming from a place of whiteness and ladiness, like we were, you mentioned before, right? So I'm probably much more erring on the side of doing a delicate job of it. But I'm also, I see people also respond specifically to me when I don't yell at them so that they can't hear. So, Yeah. I'll, I'll add, I mean, I think for me, you know, each situation would probably be handled differently. Um, primarily in my family, I'm kind of a little bit more outspoken, if you will. Um, I don't mind, you know, uh, calling people to task. Um, but one way that, you know, to do that is, you know, whatever that phrase is, um, and especially if it's someone, you know, in the family that you know, mm-hmm. um, one of the ways that, you know, I've, I've had this conversation is just reminding them that, hey, there's this word that you feel is offensive mm-hmm. if you hear it. That's exactly how that comes across mm-hmm. when you say that to other people. So I want you to think about that because I think there's some, some, some big buzzwords out there that maybe um, the majority of our population are, are familiar with and we know, like, you know, don't say that. Mm-hmm. But then there are some where it's just like, you know, the, the world is changing, the landscape is changing, and, you know, things that may have been okay 20 years ago aren't okay now. And so we have to make sure that we're doing our best, you know, to keep people informed. You know, I know, you know, and a lot of people just don't know. Do you call me African-American or black? Who knows? Right. You, it's, it's really up to the person. Right. But again, what you have to do is you have to have those conversations. I think if we're, if we're in the boardroom, um, it's just depending on the person. Yeah. You know, if I have a, a rapport with that person, um, you know, I have candid conversations with our dean mm-hmm. and we can have, you know, we can talk about that. And, you know, she she understands that she's still learning. She's in a learning process. And and that's perfectly great with some people who you may not have that uh, that rapport with. You know, you this is, you know, I'll say a, a base level, but you may just want to talk about compliance. Mm. You know, start there like, hey, we can get in trouble, you know, for you using this type of language. Right. And, you know, our team is having conversations about this, how to be better. You know, maybe we should, you know, have this conversation or, or you should come when we're having this conversation, because, you know, ultimately, if if it's a, you know, uh, you know, high ranking member of the board, mm-hmm. they don't want to get sued. Let's just, you know, let's just go there. Let's start there. Right. And then you find a common ground and then you can build on that. Right. Mm-hmm. We start with the legal part, but then then you start talking about the ethical part and the moral part. And then why you want to build a good environment and why you want to you know, create a good culture by not using this language that's derogatory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Celebrate New Year's Eve and ring in 2020 with the perfect view at the Commonwealth Club's premier Embarcadero location. As thousands of spectators watch from below, you'll revel in rooftop views of the famous Embarcadero fireworks, indulgent cuisine, high-end spirits, lively entertainment, and the ultimate New Year's Eve experience. Our New Year's Eve party was ranked in the top 10 parties of San Francisco. So visit our website and reserve your spot today. CommonwealthClub.org. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. Yep. And so we started a list over here of words, just like you said, the ones that you, I mean, the ones that you definitely shouldn't say this crowd is not doesn't need those. But the ones where the times are changing, we need to be kept abreast of these things. My sister, the, I mean, a few months ago was like, 
you're not supposed to use, I'll just say this vulnerably, you're not supposed to use the word spirit animal anymore, which obviously now that I know, I know, but I didn't know until she kindly called me aside and was like, times are changing. This is why it's not kind to indigenous cultures who have a million beautiful and deep things about it that you don't know. So you can't use it. Use the real word instead. Like that's my muse. That's my inspiration. Like just use the word that you mean, not one that's appropriating. Right. So that's the kind of word that uh, we're talking about. And it helps to have a friend or a person where they'll keep you honest on those things. So that's one thing about that. Um, Let's see. So what's a common question that you get about any area of diversity or allyship and how do you answer it? Like what, um, do you use facts? Do you use story? What's a question that a common question so that our audience can walk away now knowing how to answer that kind of question? Like, yeah. Uh, I, I, I do a lot of my work, like I said, specifically focusing on understanding race and racialization, uh, mostly for white people, liberal people. And um, a common question I get from uh, this demographic is how how can I you know, make change and how can I um, make positive impact um, without embarrassing myself? (laughs) And um, my answer is that it's a privilege to just have these feelings of embarrassment and um, to explain to the demographic that, you know, this is transformative um, and what you could actually better be thinking about um, are um, the ways in which you can be an ally um, not doing external work, but first internal work. So like I said before, do you know your history as a white person in the United States? And then intersectionally, right? So I was talking about um, white women. Uh, a lot of the white women I do work with are more professional from a more class-privileged background. So really dissecting that and understanding from childhood what that means and how you engage with even difficult topics, you know, the politics of being polite, Mm -hmm. not to offend someone. So like that deep internal work of knowing your history Mm -hmm. um, as that particular demographic, um, a white person, a white woman. Um, And of course, this particular, um, I think, um, suggestion could apply to other privileged groups. But that's the thing is that a lot of white people want to just do the extra, like, how do I help the people of color? Mm-hmm. This, but you need to, you have to actually do the, like, the socio-historic context of being racialized, gendered, classed, and this is a specific group of white class privileged women, historically. So that's the work that needs to be done. And I have resources and a lot of um, article I share, um, weaponizing white women's tears. I don't know how many people are familiar mm-hmm. with that. Like a lot of white women who don't realize unconsciously they respond in a way that benefits them because of the sanctity of white womanhood and that their tears and feelings are priority. Right. And what that means. And if that's priority, then whose isn't whose safety isn't, how's that been racialized historically and why? So like that in itself is just like a huge workshop Mm -hmm. that I have to unpack that. And that helps um, this demographic then be able to um, be better allies to um, many non-white populations, at least in the workplace. Mm-hmm. So, was that, did I answer that question? What was the question again? Oh, you definitely oh answered that question. The best answer ever. <laughs> so that's the thing is that is that, and if you don't know your history, then you can't help. Like mm-hmm. you can't help, you can't know your future and the future of others if you don't know that history. Mm-hmm. And as a reminder, uh, what's a common question you get asked about areas of diversity, and how do you answer if you two want to answer or not? I get asked a lot because I, um, you know, Coltramp is the kind of HR diversity inclusion partner to 
thousands of organizations. And a lot of people are just getting started, and they're often asked to come forward with some sort of ROI metrics, mm -hmm. like how can we prove the diversity ROI? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, my response, I'm always like, oh, let me give you a few options and like let you know, and you know what's going to work best with your leaders. But my first initiative, my first like thought is, do underrepresented people need an ROI to exist in the right, business yeah. world? Right, right. Like, what is the ROI for only hiring white people? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you. Does, do, uh, does everyone know what ROI is? Return on investment. Like, we're going to put, thank you, we're going to put some dollars into something. Right. What is the diversity ROI of that? So if, if your leaders have a social justice kind of mindset to them, I would respond with, like, What's the ROI for only hiring white people? Yeah. Or why, right. Do we need a business reason to exist? No, mm -hmm. we don't. But if they actually do want an ROI and they are, they are a numbers person, there's so much research and you can just tie it to engagement or another business metric that they care about. That's one thing that Coltramp is good at. Um, go with that route. But I just tend to find just turning that argument on its head mm -hmm. is really helpful to start. Yeah. I love it. Thank you. Or retention, right? Isn't yeah. that, I mean, retention. that's an easy business one. Easy. Easy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a question I get all the time is, um, I alluded to earlier, but uh, people come to me and say, is it Hispanic, Latinx? Mm -hmm. Is it black, African-American? Mm -hmm. And so it, that's an interesting question for me because, um, again, it depends on the person, mm -hmm. right? And I'll, I'll say, you know, I'll speak to the black African-American. Um, some research has come out that shows that White people are more comfortable with African-Americans than they are with blacks. When you hear African-American, you hear, you think um, cardigan sweater, you think college educated, you think, you know, speaks well, good job. You hear black, you, hear, you think sagging pants, you think uh, lower income neighborhoods, mm. so on and so forth. And so me personally, I prefer to be called black. Mm -hmm. And the reason being is because I want you to see a black man who doesn't have all those stereotypes that you uh, come, uh, that come with that term that apparently people have and see, let's turn it on its head. Mm -hmm. But again, everyone is different. Mm -hmm. And so there's some people who want to be called African-American for whatever reason. And so that's a question I get a lot, you know, because, you know, our language changes. Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, 20 years from now, it might be something else. I mean, mm -hmm. 40 years ago, it was Negro. I was right. Negro. That's on my birth certificate. It says Negro because that was in 1976. Yeah. Yeah. See, so. Mm. Wow. It changes. Mm -hmm. And so, again, if you're unsure, just ask. Yep. Or just call them a human. Because mm -hmm. we all fall under that one. Mm -hmm. Also, you can Google things. You can. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like that one, you, like, you, you'll Google and like, it, the advice would be ask the person. Yeah. But other things you can <laughs> Google and it will tell you. Right. Instead of going to every person of color or person who is not in the majority and making them teach you all the things. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, to get a variety of questions, um, this is Anastasia again, uh, for those on the podcast. Um, I think one of the concepts that's difficult, um, as, as a person who is a young adult or an adult in the disability community is that, uh, the concept of special needs mm -hmm. and how, 
um, that creates a, a sort of a segregation that if you're a person with a disability going through your education, that if you need additional services that are special, that you're special or something different about you. And um, that can be really frustrating. I have, a, I've had a lot of conversations about, you know, my perhaps unreasonable, but desire to completely change the law and eradicate the world's special education. Cause mm. it's not special education. It's supportive education. It's education with assistive tools. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's one thing that, that comes up in people who say, Oh, I, you know, I, I go to special Olympics or I do this and I do that. And, um, it sort of belies this, this confidence in, in knowing the disability community. And I'd say that if you're uncomfortable with the concept of disability or you're having a difficult time sort of identifying with it, I would say to both take the advice Bree said, so look at yourself and look at the messages you've been receiving and who you've been receiving them from. Maybe they're cultural, maybe they're family members who have no tolerance towards disabilities, visible or physical, but also to just sort of like challenge yourself. Like if you are really curious and want to understand what it is like to live a life with a disability, um, go volunteer mm. at an independent living center, and which usually the staff is more than 50% people with disabilities who identify as being disabled, and interact with them. You know, really just kind of go there. Um, not all people with disabilities use wheelchairs. Not all people, I mean, the physical disability is what everyone goes to or the Special Olympics. Um, you know, just, just try to kind of do that self homework of checking your own stuff and, and maybe even acknowledging that you might have some disabilities. Like you may have had periods in your life that you were not diagnosed with depression, but you definitely went through it. Or you may have anxiety. My partner, you know, when we're going to take a trip, there's a whole like line of things that have to happen before we get in the Uber to the airport. Mm -hmm. I would say that's, potentially diagnosable like there's definite steps that need to happen and time frames and i'm completely supportive and i acknowledge them and i make accommodations like i understand the plane doesn't take a cl- take off until 7 30 p.m but we're going to be there for okay <laughs> you know and that's just a part of it but it it makes her comfortable mm-hmm. and it makes the process if she's comfortable so on and so forth so i would say you know do your homework um, take some time to be introspective and figure out, like, if you're interacting with a disabled person and you're like, ah, you're very fearful, try and, like, kind of connect that to what that emotion is about and where in your life you've been given a message to be fearful. And then maybe in a little tiny way, you know, be a little brave and, and try and put yourself in a situation where you get to learn more about that particular disability or people with disabilities in general. I love it. Speaking of that, I'm going to ask you a question that's that you're still an expert, but it's going to cause you to be more vulnerable. You know these questions. I already told you ahead of time. But I want to know, so we're all trying to be allies. Like, What's an area where you know you need a, to get a little more up to snuff on a certain type of allyhood? And what are you doing about it so that people here who are in the audience who can learn, can think, oh, maybe that's a thing I could do. Like, for example, for me, I realize I don't know enough about um, the refugee and asylum experience here in America. So I am brushing up on my Spanish to help folks who are um, Spanish speaking asylum speakers, and I'm going to help volunteer with paperwork stuff. But I need to know a lot more uh, about that experience in order to be a useful, conscious person. So I'm reading only literature for the past three months and into the new year 
that it has to do with that. So anyways, that that's mine. Do you have any places where you could get a little smarter in the area of allyship? I'll start. Okay. Uh, anti-racism work. I think okay. that that's um, constant, absolute. I feel like I was given some great tools uh, as a student, and, and I actually was like a socialist-based program where it took from everything, from African-American studies, Latin American studies, women's studies, all of these things, sociology, psychology. But I feel like I just, I need to really learn what I can actively be doing as a white woman, like internally and the thoughts and how I talk, but also like showing up like, and that's the thing about the disability community that we often talk about how other communities show up for us, but we don't necessarily show up for them. Mm -hmm. I think showing up for other communities, uh, when there's, and there's been something that's happened in the community that is offensive. Um, I think that's a part of it too. So I, you know, reading blogs, just like really intentionally putting that information in front of me, on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, quickly, two things. Sure. Um, uh, people, mainly um, moms, because they usually are the ones um, who are single, people who are single moms. Mm. Um, I have four kids and I have a partner, so that alone is like, whoa. But um, not having that experience of being someone who is raising dependents as a single person, um, just really um, trying to mentor a lot of uh single moms, um, creating online networks uh, for them to ask questions and not be shamed. So being an ally that's not judgmental. So currently there are several women that I'm working with um, who said that they've been shamed, they've been judged because they had a child without having a partner. And that alone just really shunned them. And um, just getting the resources they need just to go to an interview for a job and how much it costs to do this. So just strategizing and helping um, and learning from them, just really learning and learning from what that means. So I have all this like book knowledge, but I don't have the embodied experience mm-hmm. knowledge. So kind of working together as an ally um, and understanding that, reading more about just that real lived experience of being a single mom and trying to make it through a USA that um, really uh, punishes you for you know not being partnered with a man yeah. who's your husband um, with kids, <laughs> right? So, um, and the other thing is the age thing, um, just mm-hmm. a, a lot more of the ageism and people who are uh, over, I guess, 45 or 50 when it starts the age discrimination with, you know, just trying to find employment or, you know, being um, acknowledged that you're still alive and you need to thrive. So just really understanding that and reading mm-hmm. a lot more about that um, and working with um, mostly online, um, elder, more elderly people and just listening to what they're going through. And what they need in that type of support. So, and I, I don't know that yet. I'm not, you know, a senior citizen yet. But th- those have been really great with trying to build allyship and just learning mm. from those. I have a lot of things that I'm still <laughs> getting better at working on. Um, one of the ones that we haven't talked about yet is weight discrimination, mm. like size discrimination. Yeah. That's, I mean, there's a lot of research showing mm-hmm. um, larger body people getting discriminated, getting getting paid yep. less and things like that. So that's one where I'm brushing up and there are resources out there for that. Mm-hmm. I'm also actively working to get better at the disability stuff. So you said disabled person, and I know there's a difference between using a person with a disability, that person first language, mm. or the disability first language. How good you know that. <laughs> but I've been saying person with a disability, so uh, quickly teach me. Yeah, yeah. Sure. So it's in the it's in the handout too. Um, the disability community, like all communities, is ever evolving with their language and their terms. And uh, sort of current trend is identity first language. So prior was people first language, because you know in the eighties and nineties and 
prior to, uh, people would be recalled the name of their disability, mentally retarded, which is another old term, um, as opposed to the person with a mental retardation. Mm -hmm. And so people with intellectual disabilities like that said, no more, we want to be known as people first because the association with the disability was so negative. But thanks to actually... um, people with autism, or as they like to be referred to, autistics, Mm -hmm. they have really reclaimed the word. And a lot of people in a neurodiverse community have reclaimed it. And they believe that identity first is more positive Mm -hmm. because the concept, like a lot of these things where, you know, you'll see the word disability and dis, the D-I-S is small and ability is large. Mm -hmm. is this concept of divorcing the concept of the disability from the person. And the current trend or a thought process or philosophy is that I can't cut off my hearing disability. My hearing disability is a part of me. I can't cut off my Mm -hmm. PTSD. Like that is just a part of who I am and how I function in the world. And when you tell me that I have to disassociate with my disability, you're telling me that you don't accept a part of me. Mm -hmm. Um, It really depends on your generation, uh, how sorry, down, (laughs) you are with the concept of identity first language. Um, And there's a lot of people who struggled and really pushed for people first language. So they will, they will be very strong in defending it. So it's, again, like sort of what Marco said before, it's like, you have to go to the person. And really, um, I tend to be a little bit on the radical side and edgy. And um, actually, my last job, I had this whole thing with the board of directors because they were a bunch of civil rights attorneys who um, were taught people first language. And that's mm. what we do. Do, do, do. We're good, like good liberal, check, check, you know, mm. so good disability ally, check, check. And I said, but that's not where the community's at. Mm-hmm. And we need to be inclusive. And so we compromised that we will use both terms in sort of the materials that we use for the organization. Mm. But I mean, you know, there's, you have to think about, are you giving the message to someone that their, their disability is not valid or not a, a good part of them? And so that's, that's the issue. So people want to be identified as the autistic, as a person to the person with autism, because they're proud of the autism because it makes them who mm-hmm. they are. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I think diversity 4.0, I think we've just elevated. Yes. <laughs> um, and it's hard for me because I'm building a template that's used by thousands plus organizations. So sure. I just changed from wheelchair bound to wheelchair enabled. And we just changed um, the term speak up because we've now had nonverbal people take the mm-hmm. survey. So it's now p- provided perspective. Mm. Constantly learning because the, the disability community is so wide. That spectrum is huge. So we're trying to build a template. Mm-hmm. Have some empathy for me, please. Yeah, hard. I'd love to yeah. work with you on that. Yeah. It it is a personal, obvious passion. Yeah. So, and anyone else, you know, obviously, I mean, it's it's something that's really important. And something I told Emily when we first met is, at some point, we will all have a disability in some sort of level. Maybe it won't right. meet the definitions of the Americans with Disabilities Act, but it will be something. And you might use uh, glasses right now, or you may um, take medication right now. And it's important to realize that because you don't walk around here and say, oh, I'm a person with a disability, that's a part of stigma. We're trying to work against that. So I'm always available to chat, help, whatever, coffee. So speaking, so we have 10 minutes left of the formal presentation. Speaking, I'm thinking about our folks in the audience and how you've all come, a lot of you've come from companies where you're trying to think about pushing forward things that you care about in the world of justice and diversity. What is something that 
these folks sitting right here can do when they go back to their office at one fifteen or whatever <laughs> as a regular person working in the office um how many of you are running diversity and inclusion departments? Okay, a few running the departments and the rest in engaged citizenry of your workplaces. Okay, so what can what what can folks do? What's a thing that matters that counts that really moves the needle? Stephen, I see you already giggling. How about you? <laughs> Don't start with me. <laughs> so many pieces of advice. I need to think. Oh my about gosh. It. Okay. Yeah. I'll I'll start off. Um, and I'll say first off, you do have to uh, show up and create brave spaces. I think that's important. I think um, for a while, um, and, you know, uh, at Berkeley House, we have a center, Center for Equity, Gender, and Leadership. Um, and I'd encourage you all to look it up. Um, we send our MBA students to your various companies to work on these issues with you for free. So, you know, that's, that's a resource available to you. Um, but, you know, we talked about creating safe spaces, but we want to create brave spaces yes. for those that you're allying, that you're, that you're being an ally for. So that way they can have the, the, the space to be themselves, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes... Sometimes that means you have to remove yourself from the space. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yes. I think that many times we, 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 we want to impute and we want to be there and we want to show up and we want to, you know, we want to be seen. Mm. And sometimes we have to just t- remove ourselves because many times, um, you know, people who you want to be an ally for, they might not be able to f- be themselves with you around. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so if there's a group of women, I, I may need to leave the room mm-hmm. because they want to have a conversation that, you know, I don't necessarily need to hear mm-hmm. or that they don't they wouldn't feel comfortable having with me around. And so I, I think it's important, you know, when you go back today, one fifteen tomorrow, two, if you're taking the rest of the day off um, <laughs> to, um, you know, go back and create these brave spaces and, and let let people know that, you know, you you will push for this. You will advocate for that. Uh, you will put your neck on the line. I think that's important. I think, unfortunately, uh, there have been times where people will be with you in theory, mm. but when the rubber hits the road, they're nowhere to be found. Yeah, you're, 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 you know, you. Sometimes people who will say, you know, I'm, I'm with you. I want to help you, but when it's time to protest, when it's time to knock on the manager's door, um, they're busy, and and that kind of defeats the purpose. Mm-hmm. You're no longer seen as an ally. You're seen as someone who just uh, wants to be seen as an ally. Mm. And, you know, many of us don't feel comfortable with that. We may even feel worse yeah. about you than we did had you just not said anything. Yeah. And so, you know, go back, create those brave spaces for those that uh, that need them. Yeah. And whatever that looks like, you find out, but do it. And it's doable. Mm. Thank you. Um. I guess uh, we live in a kind of a quick fix culture, I think. So a lot of times people go back and did this and it didn't happen overnight. Well, mm-hmm. it took, at least in the concept of the United States, it took 500 years or more to build like such a comprehensively oppressive system that mm-hmm. don't expect change like this. So that's one of the things that I suggest is when you go there, um, understand it kind of as these little steps and that you're doing what you need to do to be an ally to create inclusivity and that you may not experience the quick fix immediately mm-hmm. and um, to understand that and that it's a continuum. So when you go back to the workplace, understand the continuum that you're on a spectrum of where you are, where you need to be. Um, and you know, the bravery piece is, um, it's supposed to feel uncomfortable and 
again, that's the transformative piece about that is creating those brave spaces, like you were saying, and challenging yourself. I think the internal work is crucial when you go back to the workplace. Do that internal work before you're kind of, you know, all ready to do that external, how can I help them or this, you know, disenfranchised community is to do that internal Mm -hmm. question understand that the genealogy of your own privileges Mm -hmm. um and um become more aware of that because we all have them we Mm -hmm. have them so so that's Mm -hmm. what i would suggest Mm -hmm. i would just say um definitely all that and all that um be really honest with where you're at in your workplace you know i mean i think you probably know right off the hand how inclusive your environment is for a particular identity right now and if you walk back into, you know, your manager's office or the director's office, be like, bada, 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 this is what I learned. And you know it's going to fall flat on its face. Then strategize and, and think about where you can start. Um, because if you do that, you big, do the big pitch for something and the organization is just not ready for it, that can be, that can be really tough. It could really hurt you internally. Um, so I would say just kind of like take take the temperature, but the exactly what Bree said. I mean, the, the concept of doing your own work, your homework on yourself is huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because progress isn't linear. And so you need to – and then I want to respond to you. The thing that came to my head was like people say allyship is a verb, not an identity now. So mm. you have to like do the allyship. Mm, that's right? good. To like, that's good. Um, <clears throat> I would say – my piece of advice as you go back to your workplaces is now that we've hit 4.0 and the intersectionality is is so nuanced, it gets so much harder because you're taking on the, um, you know, the emotional labor and the challenges of all of these groups that we talked about today. It's okay to like, like extend yourself some grace to make mistakes and even to take a day off. Like we have to, as DNI advocates, professionals, we have to take care of ourselves first. Mm-hmm. Like, put on your own air mask first before helping others. Mm-hmm. If you're at a point where you need to take a day off, or you need to go to the spa, or you need to go shopping, those are my things. Really? <laughs> 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 um, like, do that. Like, take care of yourself mm-hmm. because we need you yeah. for the long haul. Mm-hmm. And if you can't, if you're in an organization that is constantly like, grinding you and you just need to take a day off or leave or do whatever you need to do, I would suggest like you take care of yourself first because you have to be, you have to know yourself and know the genealogy of privilege. I love that in order to to do the work. So take Mm -hmm. care of yourself first. Mm, Thank you. It's such an interesting balance of having enough of those identities of privilege to be able to take a day off. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of people in the world don't get to take that time off, but then there is still the burnout issue. And yeah, I mean, it's big. I used to say this thing of, uh, what is it? Fatigue, diversity fatigue. Yes. And I used to be like, that's a privilege. And like, you have to work every day. Now that I've been doing the work, I'm like, nope, that's a thing. (laughs) (laughs) You got to take a day off sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I super appreciate all of you for joining me on the panel. I feel very honored. Um, Thank you for inviting us. I'll say yes. I really appreciate the conversation we've had here. I appreciate all of you who spent um, your lunch with us. I hope that um, we'll turn off the mics in a second and roll off the stage and then you can come chat with us, come ask us about your specifics, your companies, your questions, et cetera. Thank you so much for coming to the Commonwealth Club. Thanks.